It probably comes as no surprise to you that I enjoy historically themed epics. Unfortunately, these programs are not always impelled to be biographically accurate. Therefore, they are an unsuitable source for citation. Notwithstanding, one chief benefit is being exposed to figures from antiquity that I had heard of but knew little to nothing about. For example, Hulu's sharp-tongued dramedy about Catherine the Great piqued my officiousness about the woman, but much of it is merely based on accurate recapitulation. Sophie of Anhalt Zerbst was a tomboy born into a Prussian aristocracy that primed her for diplomatic affairs and secured betrothal to her second cousin, Peter III of Russia, under a new name, Catherine. She was unimpressed when first meeting at age 10. The marriage remained unconsummated for a dozen years due to impotence, as Catherine promoted men of the court in government and her bedchamber until tiring of them. A multilingual bookworm engaged with civic factions, Voltaire dubbed her the Star of the North. When Peter's mother perished, the couple relocated to the Winter Palace, setting of the British plan coup d'etat to dethrone Peter. Catherine hurriedly called on armed forces to shield her as she went to the church to get ordained with the imperial crown of Russia, apprehend Peter, and dragoon him to abdicate. He was dead eight days later, either by the hands of an assassin, as rumored, or a stroke, as reported. The Catherinian era was ruled with an iron fist that waved away freedoms Peter had granted to Orthodox serfs. Her administrative tenure grew Russia's borders by 200,000 square miles and introduced the land's first paper money. Catherine was concerned for the nation's health and opened an orphanage, hospital, and reformed combat medicine. Perhaps her most admirable stunt was getting publicly vaccinated for smallpox to prove that it was safe. Nicely injected into the Hulu series. Quote, My objective was, through my example, to save from death the multitude of my subjects who, not knowing the value of this technique and frightened of it, were left in danger. End quote. Her League of Armed Neutrality was diagrammed with a larger world view to secure embarkation rights from England during the U.S. Revolution, desiring Russian glitterati to mirror the West. In a letter to Voltaire, quote, Right now I adore English gardens, curves, gentle slopes, ponds in the form of lakes, archipelago on dry land, and I have a profound scorn for straight lines, symmetric avenues. I hate fountains that torture water in order to make it take a course contrary to its nature. Statues are relegated to galleries, vestibules, etc. In a word, Anglomania is the master of my plantomania. End quote. While the two were pen pals for 15 years, they never met face-to-face. -face. On Hulu, they do, and it's charming. A wordsmith herself, Catherine's style of enlightened despotism corralled authors she rebuffed to Siberia. 
after a decade of rule, she too reportedly died of a stroke. Howbeit there was gossip semi-appended in the teleplay that Catherine met her demise by having sex with her horse, Dudley. Her will stipulated, quote, Lay out my corpse dressed in white with a golden crown on my head and on it inscribe my Christian name. Morning dress is to be worn for six months and no longer. The shorter, the better. End quote. Now, Hulu delineates the occasionally true storyline of the great as anti-historical. And from a purely factual standpoint, they are correct. But considering the anachronistic, tongue-in-cheek, unauthorized bio-series made me pick up a book about the real Catherine the Great, it is actually promoting history. So, too, has the television program that's entire roster is made up of characters named for dignitaries of yesteryear. Let's get lost in history. ABC's cryptic investiture Lost did not brand itself as historical, despite roles named mostly for 17th and 18th century philosophers. Upon a pandemic-induced re-watching of the blockbuster, I hunted for connections between characters and their real-life namesakes. This is your official spoiler alert. A kismet against fortuity, the two-part pilot cost about $12 million to make, including the purchase of a real airplane to cut in half. Loss taps into Westerns 101 by employing a lot of black and white symbolism, good and evil religious dogma, how polarity and duplexity struggle within the human mind, and redemption of sins. Just like in the Star Wars franchise, a space western, all of the major players seem to have daddy issues applied to six degrees of separation from the patron of its protagonist, Dr. Jack Shepard. The saga begins with Jack opening his eyes in the wilderness, underscored by a cacophony befitting the chaos. Realizing he has just sustained the crash of Oceanic Flight 815, our hero proceeds to take charge and attempt to rescue everyone suffering the catastrophe. Jack's father, Dr. Christian Shepard, had always advised Jack not to be a hero because he didn't, quote, have what it takes, end quote. A judgment nearly proved true because, after all, Jack was supposed to die in the double feature's last moment and Kate the convict was to be the production's main hero. Had it gone that way, Michael Keaton might have played Jack. The numbers 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, and 42 play an exigent role on Lost as lottery winners, coordinates, computer passcodes, and candidates for an Island God's replacement roster. Jack Shepard is number 23 on the list. He sat in row 23 on the plane, and Psalm 23 from the Bible is, quote, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, end quote. 
and the fictional Dr. Shepard does just this. The real-life Jack Shepard lived to the age of 23, and that is about where the propinquity to television ends. Born at the top of the 18th century, Jack was a famous English jailbird that repeatedly flew the coop by filing through window bars, tying bedsheets together, and climbing down. Known as Jack the Lad, Honest Jack, and Gentleman Jack, he was a carpenter, just like Jesus, lauded in wine and women. But Jack's crimes evolved from shoplifting to burglary, and it eventually got him hanged. Scattered curiosity, when Western American outlaws Frank and Jesse James signed correspondence to the Kansas City Star, they used the gnome de plume, Jack Shepard. On Lost, Jack is the man of science that becomes a man of faith, continually butting heads with his counterpart, number four, John Locke, the wheelchair-bound huntsman that instantly posits a miracle to have happened when 815 broke in half, as he could suddenly walk. John Locke's agnomen is the father of liberalism, an English philosopher who was admired by Voltaire, Catherine the Great, and, appurtenant to Lost, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and David Hume. 17th-century John Locke lived through the English Restoration and sought to dissociate church and state. He wasn't super theological, but maintained that religion kept the general public in check. His two treatises of government disparages absolute monarchy, declaring respective sanction on behalf of the governed and separation of powers to be paramount. Not immune to hypocrisy, John condemned helotry, yet was hugely invested in its practice. He professed the ancient Greek notion of having tabula rasa, blank slate, at birth, and that humans develop through rendezvous of self-awareness and forbearance. Sigmund Freud later contended that people don't really have free will on account of the fact that nobody has control of their upbringing. Interestingly, Tabula Rasa was the title of a Lost episode that featured very little of John Locke and centered instead on the gal whose tabula needed the most Rasa, number 51 crossed off of Jacob's list, Kate Austin an homage to the late 1800s female agitator Kate Cooper Austin, who was a voice of radical pamphlets in labor-rousing speeches following the dynamited Chicago Haymarket riot. Nobody on Lost was as enthused to start anew as John Locke. Having grown up in foster care, he was susceptible to matters of abandonment. As an adult, he belonged to a peach farming commune that grew cannabis on the side and fell victim to infiltration by a young, undercover DEA agent posing as a hitchhiker. An even worse betrayal befalls John when he is sojourned by a woman claiming to be his birth mother and sprinkling an exposition of breadcrumbs leading to his biological father, Anthony Cooper who long cons John out of a kidney and conclusively pushes him from an eight-story window. 
The use of 17th century names is germane here, considering Anthony Cooper, the first Earl of Shaftesbury, was a mentor to John Locke, whom Cooper endeared after Locke treated his liver infection. On television, we learn that Anthony preferred to do his swindling under pseudonyms like Lewis Jackson, Ted McLaren, Tom Sawyer, etc., and ruined the childhood of another Lostie who ironically adopted the Sawyer alias, number 15, James Ford, who was likewise rooked into murdering Anthony when learning his identity. John's conviction that he'd been summoned to the island was strengthened by Richard Alpert, an inhabitant since 1867, an acquaintance of John's since childhood. Sometimes called Ricardos, he was chained below deck of the Black Rock when it got hurled to the middle of the jungle by a tsunami and met by a violent cloud of sentient black smoke that snuffed out the ship's admiralty. Shackles intact, Richard is soon liberated by the smoke incarnate, a.k.a. the man in black, notifying Ricardos that he was brought to hell to extinguish the devil, Jacob, who alternately convinces Ricardos to be his eternal secretary. Richard Alpert is another oddity appellated for a real-life individual. The spiritualist psychologist was Timothy Leary's Harvard LSD research partner and gets partial credit for the popularity of yoga in Western society via his book, Be Here Now. Alpert went to India to immerse in Hinduism and emerged as Ramdas, a name given by his guru, which translates to servant of God. Born a Jew but a self-professed atheist, Ram Das proclaimed, quote, I didn't have one whiff of God until I took psychedelics, end quote. He went on to work with Wavy Gravy to blueprint public health institutions such as the Dying Center. According to his final book, Ram Das Becoming Nobody, quote, You have to be somebody to become nobody, end quote. Now, the Black Rock was a first-rate riddle onion that creators slowly peeled throughout the series. One layer is Richard's origin story, and another reveals her storm flight to the center of the island, destroyed Towerett, an ancient four-toed statue resembling the Colossus of Rhodes, along the way. It is a logical means to justify the presence of old unstable dynamite on the island, and get extra use out of the French woman that made the craft known to the abiding manifest of 815, Danielle Rousseau, the last standing of her tandem reefed on the island 16 years prior. Danielle's crew was also welcomed by the smoke monster, along with sporadic encounters with half of candidate number 42, Jin Su Kwan who is having troubles of his own, experiencing uncontrollable time skips. Jin's random disappearances undoubtedly augmented everyone's descent into madness, compelling a pregnant Danielle to execute her aggregation. Danielle reconciles whispers heard in the breeze as the others, 
a group of hostile natives and informs the survivors it is her looped radio tower message of coordinates. Rousseau's meaningful interactions with the castaways could not have been more undercut with how much her death sucked. A quick gunshot in season four and a lame guest appearance in the season six sideways world. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a French philosopher, composer, and author of 1762's The Social Contract and Discourse on Inequality. Rousseau opposed the notion that men are naturally wicked and embraced the perception of the noble savage, like Tarzan. He postulated that morals were natural. Animals do not like to watch other animals suffer, not even predators. Rousseau blamed culture for self-love and pride that leads to jealousy and paranoia. He disparaged sciences and art for their malfeasance of extravagance, stature as barriers to pure devotion, and disputed the Atlantic slave trade. In the social contract, he articulates, quote, Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. Those who think themselves the masters of others are indeed greater slaves than they, end quote, to illustrate how property leads to laws and rivalry. While a king relies on the peasant for food, the peasant gets protected by the sovereign from raiding enemies. It's a social contract. Rousseau is said to have inspired the revolt of French Jacobins, stating, quote, The first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, This is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, that man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, Beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all, and the earth itself to nobody. End quote. From here, you can select the qualities you might accredit to both the real and fictional Rousseau's. Thriving in the age of sensibility as a proud citizen of Geneva, Rousseau came from a family of watchmakers and reckoned, quote, A Genevan watchmaker is a man who can be introduced anywhere. A Parisian watchmaker is only fit to talk about watches, end quote. In 1742, he attempted to get rich by flaunting his numerical music notation of intervals in rhythm. Rousseau hailed melodic Italian music above the harmonic French kind on the grounds that melody more allows artistic freedom, absent of rules, and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart defended this testimony. Rousseau even wrote an opera of his own, Les Divans du Village, The Village Soothsayer, that King Louis XV liked so much he offered Rousseau a lifelong annual grant, which he declined. Humbly remembered as the man who had refused a king's pension, 
Jean-Jacques impregnated a seamstress four separate times and put each child into a foundling home, yet had no qualms whatsoever in telling others how offspring should be raised, quote, if children understood how to reason, they would not need to be educated, end quote, and discerned a woman's place to be in a home, otherwise, quote, men would be tyrannized by women. For given the ease with which women arouse men's senses, men would finally be their victims, end quote. Rousseau assessed religion as preponderant to community, all equally noble in guiding humans towards morality, though he conceded that the actual disciples of Christ would make terrible citizens, and this got many of his writings banned and burned. Shocking least of all, his friend David Hume, who urged Jean-Jacques to self-exile to England, the contemporaries drifted apart in a manner so sensationalized that Hume felt obliged to publish a concise and genuine account of the dispute between Mr. Hume and Mr. Rousseau. It was a shame Rousseau was unable to retain David Hume's fondness because they extolled one another as enthusiasts of John Locke, Francis Bacon, and Thomas Hobbes. As a historian, philosopher, librarian, and naturalist, Hume, too, credited perspicacity for knowledge. Quote, Reason is, and ought only to be, the slave of the passions, and can never pretend to be any other office than to serve and obey them. End quote. The is-ought supposition became known as Hume's Law. David did not accept the validity of miracles, calling them, quote, a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent, end quote. The parable Hume used to demonstrate this plight follows an Indian prince in a hot climate receiving news that a nearby lake has frozen over. This cannot be. It's a portent. No, it's weather. Inasmuch as David Hume's six-volume History of England was the primary source for six decades, his autobiography, My Own Life, is a mere five pages, which would be pretty light reading material for lost Scottish hatchman Desmond Hume who carried a copy of Our Mutual Friend with him, so it would be the last thing that he ever read. Desmond is an ardent supporter of destinism as he navigates space and time, gets stymied by Eloise Hawking's chilling substantiation that one cannot change fate, and the universe will correct itself if you try. Desmond is my favorite eccentric on Lost, and essential in explaining time travel's need for a constant, a person significant to one's life that exists before and after the departure from a linear timeline. He ascertains his constant to be Penny Widmore, by way of the man that relies on Desmond to be his constant, scientist Daniel Faraday, son of Charles Widmore, Penny's disapproving father, and Eloise Hawking, named for Stephen Hawking. Daniel is a loose representation of diamagnetic genius Michael Faraday. Like Rousseau, 
Faraday was offered decorations, finance, and the opportunity to be knighted for scientific contributions and declared president of the Royal Society, but abjured twice on the grounds of religious conflict. Michael's early comprehension of electromagnetic fields and how they force light to generate a current made voltaic motors real. But his benefactions to humanity don't end there. He discovered benzene, invented the predecessor to the Bunsen burner, and brought cathodes and ions to the awakening of his peers. Albert Einstein had Michael's likeness pinned to his wall like Farrah Fawcett. Like his primetime ditto, Faraday was an environmentalist that repudiated chemical warfare akin to Benjamin Linus's eradication of Dharma personnel. Voted the number one greatest TV villain of all time by Rolling Stone, Ben Linus is a faux genuflection to the two-time Nobel Prize-winning chemist ranked the 16th most important scientist in history, Linus Carl Pauling. He was part of a team that attributed irregular proteins to the development of sickle cell anemia. No one had ever framed up a virus on the molecular level before this. Giving the world quantum chemistry, Linus was once close to Robert Oppenheimer until the nuclear forefather propositioned Pauling's wife Ava with an adulterous affair in Mexico. Friendship over. Undeterred by their checkered past, Oppenheimer later extended an invitation to Pauling to work on the Manhattan Project during World War II. He didn't, but instead benefited the military by devising the Pauling meter to inspect oxygen content in airplanes, submarines, and later infant incubators. Harry Truman gave Linus the Presidential Medal for Merit. After the war, Linus and Ava became pacifists. They joined the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists, a contingent headed by Albert Einstein, tenacious to instruct the world on how dangerous nuclear weaponry was and still is today. Pauling's harmonious attitude prompted the State Department to revoke his passport prevent him from speaking in England on the topic, and roadblock his path to Stockholm to receive a Nobel Prize. Nevertheless, Linus wished nuclear testing to halt and got over 11,000 scientists worldwide to concur, resulting in 1963's Part Test Ban Treaty, earning Mr. Pauling the Nobel Peace Prize. The committee said this of him, quote, Linus Carl Pauling, who ever since 1946 has campaigned ceaselessly not only against nuclear weapons tests, not only against the spread of these armaments, not only against their very use, but against all warfare as a means of solving international conflicts. End quote. American publications described this indication enough to call Linus a communist as he protested the unconstitutional Vietnam War by corresponding with both President Johnson and Ho Chi Minh. Clearly, there is little resemblance between Linus Pauling and Benjamin Linus other than they are both brilliant, steadfast minds. 
Though I guess you could make the case that they've each been portrayed as having communist sympathies, as one of Ben's most loyal lieutenants was the patron of the flame station, Mikhail Bakunin, who has got to be the most like his namesake, and one could do a whole interlude covering the Russian insurgent responsible for collective anarchy. Luckily, I don't have to. Mike Duncan takes care of that in Season 10 of The Revolution's podcast, so I will direct you there for enhanced depth on the subject. But briefly, Mikhail was born into a distinguished family and spent his teen years in a martial academy, but did not care for army life, preferring to read philosophy. He aspired to go to Germany and become a professor or priest of truth, but got sidetracked by student groups humming with subversive desires. After striking a rapport with Karl Marx in Paris, Emperor Nicholas revoked Mikhail's titles, land, and invoked his banishment to Russia. Motivated by the rhetoric, Bakunin learned that dictatorship of the proletariat rules over the proletariat, not run by them. In the 1848 Czech Rebellion, Bakunin's involvement got him jailed for a decade and then shipped off to Siberia. The malnutrition he suffered while in chains bred scurvy and tooth loss. He escaped under the guise of a freighting merchant and managed to get himself from a Russian warship onto an American boat and then hopping around to Japan, San Francisco, Panama, New York, Boston, Liverpool, and Spain, where he headed up a chapter of the First International until Karl Marx kicked him out. Bakunin expected peasants and laborers to unite in defection, whereas Marx coveted workers gaining bureaucratic leverage. Mikhail contended, quote, If you took the most ardent revolutionary, vested him in absolute power, within a year he would be worse than the Tsar himself, end quote. Boasting it was, quote, all the more dangerous because it appears as a sham expression of the people's will. When the people are being beaten with a stick, they are not going to be much happier if it is called the people's stick, end quote. Bakunin spurned class systems starting at the top with God. Quote, God exists, therefore man is a slave. Man is free, therefore there is no God. Escape this dilemma who can, end quote. To him, religion tricked plebeians into toiling through life on earth with the promise of paradise in the afterlife. Bakunin contrasted Voltaire's if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him, with, quote, if God really existed, it would be necessary to abolish him, end quote. And while I commend Andrew Divoff's portrayal of Mikhail on the show, Lost fails to adequately throw light upon his ability to be repeatedly emulated, be it by sonic electrocution or harpoon to the chest, without alarm. A superpower that just one other guy on the island possessed, John Locke but not since Richard denotes that anyone can die, which is proven by John's off-island strangulation at the hands of Benjamin Linus. 
The obituary was printed under the alias Jeremy Bentham after the 18th century philosopher correlated with utilitarianism, self-determination, women's rights, including divorce, a human's right to participate in buggery, the eradication of thraldom, the death penalty, and cruelty to animals, conceding that an animal could be hunted for food or taken down in conservation, but not agonized in vain. Quote, The question is not can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? To my apprehension, every act by which, without prospect of preponderant good, pain knowingly and willingly produced in any being whatsoever is an act of cruelty. And, like other bad habits, the more the correspondent habit is indulged in, the stronger it grows, and the more frequently productive its bad fruit. I am unable to comprehend how it should be that to him whom it is a matter of amusement to see a dog or a horse suffer, it should not be a matter of like amusement to see a man suffer. End quote. A born genius, Bentham could read Latin at age three and was a proficient violinist by age seven. His life's routine was up at 6 a.m., two-hour walk, and quit work at 4 p.m. Jeremy Bentham donated his cadaver to science for post-mortem and display. Go see him at the University College of London. His skeleton was preserved as an auto-icon by stuffing it with straw, like a scarecrow, to fill it out. Jeremy's instructions were to have his head mounted on it, but the process used at the time ended up making him look pretty darn scary, so they fashioned a wax head and embedded it with his hair follicles. Interchanging corpse exhibitions binds lost John Locke to Jeremy Bentham neatly. But it is unveiled in the hindmost season that John's resurrection is really the smoke monster puppeteering his lifeless body, personifying loss incorporation of black-white, yin-yang, good-evil symbolism to a fault. The island's potency is located within a brilliantly lighted pool cascading into a deep cavern corked by a boulder. A revelation in serial S6E15 across the sea by its nameless guardian, who becomes a foster mom to dizygotic twins born to an interloper named Claudia, who went into labor shortly after her island arrival. Once swaddled in undergrowth, the guardian garroted Claudia to raise the sucklings as her own. One is baptized Jacob, and the other, no name. He is the man in black. In adolescence, the boys are alarmed to come across others, other people, because they had been brought up to understand that there were no others, anywhere, nothing beyond the waves. Mother elucidates that, quote, they are not like us. We're here for a reason, end quote, and hesitantly bestows to them the lighted heart of the island, expounding that it's her job to protect it from corruption and somehow makes it so the brothers cannot harm one another. A bit of ghostly revenge occurs when Claudia's spirit haunts the teen in black in the middle of a game of Senate and exposes the circumstances of her homicide. 
When confronted, the mother guardian admits it, causing a rift in the fraternity. The man in black goes to live with the others, persistent as ever to leave the island. Thirty years later, his group taps into the island's extraordinary idiosyncrasies that provoke, quote, metal to behave strangely. When hearing about the giant wheel at the bottom of a well that is being built to harness the island's dynamism, Mom performs a ritual, transferring the immortal conservatorship of the island to Jacob, and then goes off to plead with the man in black to reconsider. He refuses, so she conks him out, slaughters all of his compatriots, and fills the well with dirt. Forsaken, he kills her, triggering an enraged Jacob to drag Mr. Black through the woods to the heart and throw his twin into the light where he aggressed as the smoke monster. Jacob then puts the two lifeless bodies to rest in the cave that they called home, where their bones would be happened upon by Jack Shepard centuries later and referred to as Adam and Eve. But the eternal sibling rivalry continued. Along the way, Jacob began his search for a replacement using a lighthouse spyglass and, either physically or spiritually, at no time made plain, left the island to intervene in the lives of select future oceanic passengers. Jacob's list of candidates, numbered in no particular order, got whittled down to Hugo Reyes Hurley, number 8, by the series Denouement. The part of Hurley was in obeisance of Hugo de Groot, a Dutch lawyer, poet, and playwright that cogitated Ma Liberum, the Free Seas, in the mid-1600s. De Groot claimed the seas should be free for all nations to use. But, as Holland's biggest rival on the briny, Great Britain disagreed and called for Mar Closum, the Closed Sea, declaring the water around them belonged to England. Thusly, because it is an island, all oceans belong to England. Amidst the Calvinist unrest of the Dutch Revolt, Hugo was given a life sentence for opposing an aggressive move by the Prince of Orange, but was able to break out of jail with the help of his wife by hiding in a trunk full of books. Supposedly, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam has the chest today, while the Het Prinsenhof in his hometown of Delft claims that they do. The twosome hastily migrated to Paris, where Hugo received an annuity from Louis XIII and thanked the magnate by dedicating his best-known book to His Majesty on the Law of War and Peace, which lists three just causes for war, self-defense, restitution, and retribution, and he suggested that there should be rules of war. Having been on the front lines, Hugo recalled, quote, I observed that men rush to arms for slight causes or no cause at all, and that when arms have once been taken up, there is no longer any respect for law, divine or human. It is as if, in accordance with a general decree, frenzy had openly been let loose for the committing of all crimes, end quote. David Hume revered de Groot, Voltaire found him banal, Rousseau departed from his philosophies, 
and his cerebration galvanized John Locke. Hugo's dying words were, quote, By understanding many things, I have accomplished nothing, end quote. Like our other prominent attested luminaries, you can pick and choose the virtues you want to designate to DeGroote's boob tube persona, Hurley. With all, Lost writers did a very good job linking some crucial puzzle pieces to the island's concluding keeper. For instance, Hurley played the numbers that a fellow Santa Rosa mental institution patient muttered over and over to win the lottery, and then suspects that he's gone mad when hearing those exact same numbers recast over Russo's radio SOS transmission after the plane wreck. They are coincidentally the very digits that must be entered into the Swan Station computer every 108 minutes to avert a catastrophic event, and are the lingering lot of Jacob's dwindling docket of candidates. Scatter curiosity, Weezer's eighth album, Hurley, celebrates candidate number eight with actor Jorge Garcia's picture on the cover. Bonus curiosity, the number 108 is a running theme as the sum of the numbers, but it is also the total number of days that the survivors of 815 were on the island. However, according to the Dharma Initiative, the numbers are derivative of the Enzo Valenzetti equation to calculate our inevitable manufactured Armageddon. The creators started strong by sundering tip-offs of intrigue, polar bears, dharma sharks, and blacklight hatch maps, but by season five, knowing that the end was in sight, they continued forging new conundrums without resolving plausibly many of the original ones. USA Today put it best, quote, if you withhold answers, it becomes impossible to satisfy, end quote. After Ben Linus leads the others to purge the Dharma compound, how can they continue to use the program submarine to go on and off the island and keep getting payloads delivered via airdrop? In the finale, Ben contacts Dharma on Guam and tells them to stop sending care packages. Where is Christian Shepard's body? Jack follows the man in black in the fettle of his father to fresh water but when he spots his dad's coffin in the woods, it is empty, and the remains unrecovered. Libby Smith, a widowed psychologist who gave Desmond her dead husband's boat, is divulged to be an obsolete patient of the same Santa Rosa psych ward as Hurley, but no payoff for why she was there or how she got out. After the hatch explodes from not entering the numbers, Desmond can suddenly see into the future with remarkable accuracy, especially pertaining to Charlie's death, claiming it will culminate in Claire escaping the island in a helicopter with her baby if allowed to happen. But after Charlie bravely accepts the suicide mission, Claire never escapes, and so he died in vain. Finally, when Charles Widmore directs a mercenary squad to extradite Ben Linus from the island, they capture and kill Ben's adopted daughter, Alex, acknowledged as Danielle's now-grown baby girl that he bundled off with at Widmore's command when leader of the island 16 years prior, which is also not diagrammed, or why exactly he was ostracized. Enraged, Ben confronts Charles regarding this changing of the rules. What rules? 
They were not previously mentioned, nor, to that extent, why they should be obeyed. But where Lost really shit the bed was with Walt, the singular life force that had special powers before coming to the island, and the sole living specimen able to appear to the marooned when he's not there. Remember, the smoke monster is confined to profiles of a deceased person or animal. But after season two, Walt is expulsed to the sidelines, used as a gambit to get Shannon accidentally shot, and telling Locke to climb out of a mass grave. The time-skipping subterfuge kindled by Ben wrenching the underground wheel was a perfect opportunity to account for how he seems to know the passengers of 815 so well, but doesn't give reason for Danielle forgetting her baby's kidnapper. Ben claims to have been born on the island, which is only semi-true. For an S5E9 namaste, it is uncovered that young Ben and his father were recruited into the Dharma Initiative in 1973. Four years later, he befriends a Dharma-imprisoned time traveler, Saeed Jarrah, number 16 on Jacob's ticket, and frees him in exchange for refuge with the hostiles. Knowing his future crimes, do you smother baby Hitler? Saeed shoots Ben to prevent his growing up, causing Kate and James to rush to Dr. Jack Shepard, who refuses to operate on the child for the very same reason, forcing them to bring the kid to Richard to be fixed in the ominous waters of the temple, with the caveat that Ben will be diverged and lose empathy. Benjamin is cured by the island, reborn, but told by Richard that he must be patient and is sent back to grow up in the Dharma barracks, awaiting the signal to unleash a gas attack. Scatter curiosity, Ben was only supposed to be in three episodes, but actor Michael Emerson won the production team over. As the Star Ledger put it, quote, the actor is so good and the character so popular that he's kept alive even though he makes all the heroes look like idiots, end quote. And much like the end of Lost left me hanging with a sense of unsatisfaction, I'm afraid today's podcast is similar. No real answers. No apparent conjointment between same-named bodies. The question is... What would have been a better ending to Lost than having most of the passengers of 815 all meeting in a church in what is presumably heaven? Any summation was likely bound to face indicative criticism. Yet this one is a bit deserved, given that showrunners explicitly articulated that the crowning mind-boggler was not a heaven-hell limbo situation in the years leading up to the occasion. They could have easily disclosed the whole ordeal as the U.S. government's attempt to fabricate an island-wide Faraday cage run amok, starting with the installation of 1954's Jughead H-bomb, meant to negate and accouter the electromagnetic energy load beneath the site of the vicarious Swan Station, the hatch, located well behind enemy lines in hostile territory. This would give reason to the others having a submarine, an inconceivable bankroll, the engineering resources needed to build an underwater lamppost station, and how Richard, Ben, Tom, and Ethan can leave and re-enter the island without going crazy. The beacon used for the Dharma Supply airdrops is meticulously tantamount owed to the island's unique hallmarks. 
since it moves in perpetuity, the island must be entered from an exact angle to avoid temporal displacement as it did with George Minkowski, in deference to Hermann Minkowski, the fourth dimension visionist that influenced Albert Einstein's esteem for special relativity. But even I, Albert Einstein, have no rationale for why swerving the frosty wheel in the orchid station transports the helmsman to Tunisia. There are other losties loosely named for historical hotshots like Charlotte Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and Karl Martin, Karl Marx, but I wanted to compare just three more tributes to provocative verifiables that drove the narrative. Loss's indelible island birth and subsequent kidnappings were made possible by Oceanic's Australian damsel in distress, single mother and erstwhile tattoo artist Claire Littleton, anointed in honor of Clarissa, or Clara, Barton. At age 10, Clara's brother had a terrible fall that she nursed by dispensation of leeches and realized that she had found her life's calling. After lobbying to establish the first free school in New Jersey, Clara and a colleague ran the facility to such success that the school board replaced her with a man, demoting her to an assistant. Clara moved on to work as a clerk in the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C., demanding equal pay to her male colleagues, and got it. Those same co-workers hated her, and she was fired during James Buchanan's presidency for her, quote, black republicanism, end quote. Clara reverted to the job when Lincoln was elected. As wounded Civil War troops arrived in Washington, D.C., Clara rushed to the train yard to care for the injured, improvised corn husk bandages, and organized a troop of women to pen letters to their families. This angel of the battlefield tended to fighters on both sides of the conflict and was nearly hit by a stray bullet that went through her sleeve and hit the guy that she was helping. After the war, Barton asked Lincoln to spearhead an effort to ID all the bodies. The Office of Missing Soldiers was brought into actuality, and Clara and her staff were able to identify over 22,000 men. She gained national attention and partnered with Susan B. Anthony to push for women's suffrage and Frederick Douglass for civil rights. Clara sailed to Europe and learned of Switzerland's Red Cross. It was decided that she'd head up the American branch until it was shot down by Rutherford B. Hayes, denying that a civil war could ever be duplicated. The function would not be sanctioned until Chester A. Arthur was seated at the head of government and was only then approved by expanding the service beyond the battlefield to include natural disasters and humanitarian crises. The real-life lost parallel I can divine between the two Claires is their affiliation to medical facilities. Claire is abducted by Ethan and taken to the staff, a Dharma maternity ward, for two weeks of needles to her stomach, most likely with the prenatal cocktail developed by the bus-smushed Edmund Burke's laboratory. Edmund Burke was an 18th century member of Parliament's Whig Party, said to be, quote, more Irish than the Irish themselves, end quote. 
Edmund worked on a book spanning England's history from Caesar to Queen Anne and completed 640 pages of it before quitting at year 1216. Greatly due to David Hume publishing his history of England first. Edmund countered his lost personage as an anti-monopolist and referred to the death penalty as, quote, the butchery which we call justice, end quote. On the topic of America, Burke's British conservatism was quick to suggest that commerce was cheaper than war. He offered these solutions to end the revolution. Allow America representatives, admit and apologize for England's handling of the situation, dispatch delegates, have a general assembly in the colonies that take in taxes, and impart provisions to colonists. Quote, Be content to bind America by laws of trade. You have always done it. No body of men will be argued into slavery. End quote. But Burke was conflicted on democracy, evincing that governments needed to be run by intelligent citizens, which is rarely eventualized amongst common folk. To that end, the common folk would likely vote for pandering populists quashing the threat of sodality. Edmund refuted that slaveholders should be allowed to serve in the House of Commons, while also alleging that blacks were barbaric and needed to be tamed by Christianity. He further commented that it was slavery that made them barbaric by seizing their ability to have pride or catechism. Burke and Hume blamed Rousseau for stirring the French Revolution that they viewed as a threat to Catholics and disparaged him as a, quote, lover of his kind but hater of his kindred, end quote, for having put his own children in an orphanage which is a perfect pivot spur back to Loss Rousseau, whose daughter was regnant to helping the amnesiatic Claire escape Ethan's clutches into the night and chance upon John Locke and his protege, Boone Carlyle, eschewing their search for her. Claire was written out in season four and brought back for the last as the new Rousseau, a raving, childless boskage recluse. Boone is a conglomeration of frontiersman Daniel Boone and historian Thomas Carlyle and was one of the first notable characters to die on Lost. According to John Locke, Boone was a sacrifice that the island demanded. Daniel Boone grew up Quaker but became disenchanted by the religion after his brother and sister married worldlings outside of the faith and got expelled from the settlement. Dan never went to church again. Boone earned money through the fur market with little pedagogy. As his father, Squire Boone, remarked, quote, Let the girls do the spelling and Dan will do the shooting. End quote. All the same, he was far more literate than most of the men he explored with. His two favorite books, Gulliver's Travels and the Bible. This line of work took him on Wilderness Road through the Cumberland Gap to where he founded Boonesboro, Kentucky, west of the Appalachian Mountains. Dan married Rebecca Bryan and had ten kids. One day, he left for two years without any contact whatsoever. Supposing him dead, Rebecca carried on with Daniel's brother, Ned, and even had a daughter by him. 
Shawnee tribes people neutralize Ned while on a hunting trip, taking his head as a trophy because the assassins thought that they had extirpated Daniel, with whom they had a score to settle because Dan had fought with a Kentucky militia that mostly skirmished with Native Americans. In 1776, Dan's daughter Jemima and two other local girls were snatched from Boonesboro by the Shawnee. Daniel's ensuing rescue is embellished in the book The Last of the Mohicans. And over time, Boone learned to endure with the tribe. Known as the Columbus of the Woods, much of the mythos surrounding him comes from a book titled The Discovery, Settlement, and Present State of Kentucky with a section called The Adventures of Colonel Daniel Boone based on interviews and punched up with some exploit. Various tomes followed and adjoined extended festoons to his legacy, like Dan wrestling a bear or swinging on vines to elude attacks by raiders. His relatives laughed at it. He wasn't a big man in a coonskin cap, as the TV theme song suggests, and Hollywood has ever since confused Daniel Boone with Davy Crockett. Thomas Carlyle, the sage of Chelsea, espoused the great man theory of history with his book On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic History. He called economics the dismal science in his three-part history of the French Revolution. A Christian-turned-deist, he supported the peonage of menial labor, estranging him from the humanistic crowd. Carlyle was known for being impotent, ornery, and ill-humored. All supplemented the less-than-joyful pairing with wife Jane Welsh. Quote, It was very good of God to let Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle marry one another, and so make only two people miserable and not four. End quote. To Thomas, disbelief in God was the everlasting no, Mesistopheles, Everlasting yea is just the opposite. The center of indifference balanced the two, and pandemonium like this creates heroes to sweep away the turmoil. Thomas's heroes comprised of Shakespeare, Odin, Napoleon, Oliver Cromwell, Martin Luther, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But Carlyle bespeaks, heroes are flawed. They are heroes for using their abilities to face adversity, not because they are charitable people. His paragon is valetism, for the reason that no man is hero to his valet. Put another way, every hero kicks his dog and every villain loves his cat. In contempt of his massive success writing on the topic, Thomas discouraged democracy policy driven by populist votes, and inherited leadership. History of Frederick II of Prussia, a.k.a. Frederick the Great, was Carlyle's last manuscript that he referred to as the Minotaur, the unutterable book, and his 13 years' war because that's how long it took for him to write. He contended the Normans to be responsible for the Anglo-Saxon thirst for conquest, claiming that it proved the race's dominance, 
to align with this anti-Semitic strikedown of a parliamentary proposal to let Jewish people vote. Carlisle called it the Jew Bill, saying that a, quote, real Jew could only be a citizen of his own wretched Palestine, end quote. Charles Dickens denounced these sentiments, and George Orwell referred to Carlyle as, quote, a master of belittlement, end quote. Carlyle's rhetoric was later absorbed by Nazi bigwigs Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler. His last words, quote, so this is death. Well, end quote. Which was basically my reaction to the death of Lost. Yet I cannot claim to have done much better scattering my curiosities today. But before I go, I have to share with you one intuitive fan theory that I read online regarding Libby Smith. Hurley's short-lived girlfriend from the tale section of Oceanic 815. The conspiracy is that Anna Lucia and Libby were substantive employees of Charles Whitmore he planted on the flight, justifying why Ben has Michael kill Anna Lucia and Libby as part of his deal to get Walt off of the island. But it gets more orphic than that. The blonde Elizabeth Smith claims to be a clinical psychologist when she gave Desmond her late husband David's boat. That gets Desmond to the island and away from Charles's daughter Penny, where he prefers him. Now, without sounding too shallow, one would not expect an island beauty like Libby to have such ardor for someone like Hugo, especially on an island full of hunky dudes. In Hurley's flashbacks, we come to see an unkempt, red-headed Libby posing as a patient in the Santa Rosa psych ward to learn about the necromantic numbers that former U.S. Naval officer Leonard Sims chanted through a solitary round of Connect Four, a game with 42 spaces. Once Hurley unleashes the cursed numbers in the form of lottery winnings, Widmore revised the initiative of Libby's mission to infiltrate Hugo Reyes. I'm telling you, fan fiction composed by folks with emotional attachments to the characters often results in alternate ventures that run the gamut from insightful to sexy to hilarious. But beware of exploring the rabbit hatch of intrigue because you might find yourself so deep that you are indeed lost. (laughs) Albert, the button. Oh, right. keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show